The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Discover hope and healing from the other side Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. I'm so grateful to be here today with my special guest, Sharon Prentice, who you will come to know well by the end of the show. I've come to know her through her beautiful book that we're going to be sharing with you today. And for those of you who are watching this after the fact on YouTube, the book is Becoming Starlight, Surviving Grief and Mending the Wounds of Loss. So as many of you hear that, you say, oh, I can relate to that because who among us doesn't know what it's like to be a wounded human? It's part of the human experience. And the challenge is that we tend to think that somehow we're going to sail through life with no problems whatsoever. And when those problems do come up, it really knocks the legs out from under us. Well, Sharon has quite the story to tell, not only about how those legs were taken out from under her, but the the stunning way in which she found instant healing, but not after years of challenges. So I know that you'll be inspired by her story. Let's get right to it. And then welcome Sharon to the show. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. I've been so looking forward to speaking with you. Well, thank you. You know, one thing that impressed me in the book and actually surprised me is that I kept waiting for you to talk about why you are Sharon Prentice, PhD. And it never came up, Dr. Prentice. You, there's so little need for you to talk about that in this book, which is unusual for the human condition, that it, it's not even part of the story, but I'm interested. I want to hear just a little of your background and your creds for the people who are listening. My creds, my creds. <laughs> That's the boring part of me as far as I'm concerned. Um, Yes, I am a psychologist and a licensed psychologist, and I'm also a licensed pastoral counselor. Um, never, ever planned on doing this. It was the experiences that, that I had that sent me in that direction. Started out at Old Dominion University, flunked out. <laughs> I wasn't the least bit interested. I really didn't go back to college for many, many, many years. Then um, it was uh, George Mason University after my husband died. And I got uh, my bachelor's and master's there, then went to Georgetown Med. Being an MD just and me just did not work at all. So I left there and went back to George Mason 
and got my PhD in clinical there. Um, and the only reason I stayed in school as long as I did is you've got to have the credentials to do what I do. That's and, right. You know, so that, that was very important for people to understand that not only had I been where they are, right. I had to have the backup stuff so that when they came to me, they knew that I wasn't just, you know, talking out of my hat and that I could really help them. That's right. That's the way our culture is. Those, those letters after the name are important yeah. when people are seeking help. One word in your biography jumped out at me. It's one that I recognized right away. Ty didn't recognize it, but and uh, he said it's because it's a Greek word and he was a Latin scholar. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that word is thanatologist. And yes. being a medium, I know that word, but why don't you tell people how that factors into your work? Oh my goodness. That is so very, very important to me. I do an awful lot of death and dying counseling. Matter of fact, for a long while, many, many years, um, my patient population was about 90% terminally ill patients and their families. Um, that became so important to me. I needed people to understand that the process of dying versus the actual moment of death, which were very different things. Um, um, I learned on my own. I really believe this, and I, I would love your opinion on this. I really believe that the soul starts to disconnect from the body days, even weeks before uh, the actual moment of death, because the soul knows when it's time. It doesn't need this anymore. Um, and so that part of my practice was, was really tantamount to what I was doing. That's where I was sent. After my experiences, that's where I was sent. So, uh, by the way, I absolutely confirm with you that the soul is already preparing for the next experience, yeah. uh, still carrying on this story across the veil, but starting to detach fully. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so would you please just put into words what a thanatologist is? Oh, what is a thanatologist? Um, somebody who knows death? How does that work? <laughs> that works. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, and counsels others. Counsels others. Absolutely. Counsels yeah. others. One of the things that I try to get people to understand is that the dying process, death is the single most sacred point in someone's entire lifetime. A lot of people think it's birth. I disagree with that. Yes. Birth is a sacred time, but though those moments right before the actual moment of death. Okay. That process. Good Lord. It is the most sacred, the most sacred time of all because the things that are said and the feelings and the, it, it's just it, the entire atmosphere just changes. And, and I try to take people's fear away in our culture, as you well know, we run from death. We don't oh, yeah. talk about it. Okay. Yep. We're so afraid of it that we miss the single most sacred part of being human. I love that you brought this up. I'm filled with goosebumps because I didn't see us going here, but of course, spirit knows this is exactly <laughs> what everybody needs to hear. And you are so right. And we'll get to your story because it's important that you were there for your husband's passing, which right away makes every, so many people listening able to identify more with you rather than just some person with a PhD that counsels people. You've been there. 
But at that time, you weren't aware of it as a sacred moment. You went through it as the worst moment ever. So let's talk about what a difference it makes to see it that way versus going through it with the ignorance of the human conditioning. It is, I, I, I can't even find the words to tell you the difference. Well, you know what, reading your book, you found the words to describe the afterlife more beautifully than anybody I've ever read. We'll talk about that as we go along. So take a moment, even though this is live radio, and find (laughs) find the words. I will, I will. You know, my, my husband's death, there were two events in my life that formed who I am. The first was my daughter's death. And at her death, I set up this existential battle with God, with death, with all of those things that I had been taught all my life. Give me just a second here, because right there, we hadn't mentioned that you also are what we now call a shining light parent, not a bereaved parent, a shining light parent with a child across the veil. She's your shining light. And now you are one for others. So now more of our listeners can identify with you. You're both a widow and a shining light parent. And here you are helping other peoples to see that as a sacred time. What's that all about? At the moment of her death, I most certainly did, did not see it as a sacred time. Of course. Um, what faith I had, I realized really wasn't faith at all. You know, I'd just been listening to some guy up on a pulpit shouting down at me, you know, telling me to be the good little girl, do what, you know, do what I tell you to do and you're going to go to heaven and blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I saw God as this, you know, Charlton Heston figure. I'm um, going to throw lightning bolts down at me if I did anything wrong. So I always tried to do everything perfect. And then my daughter died and I realized, or at least I thought that there's no God because if there was a God, why, why would something, someone um, take the life of a child? I mean, it, it, it made absolutely no sense to me. And I became the most angry, bitter. I didn't even want to be around me. Okay. Um, And then when my husband started getting sick, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on? I still had not healed from my daughter's death. And here I am going through my husband's death. So at at, at the moment of his death, uh, it it was, how is there a word for surrender? I found what surrender was at the moment of his death because I was tired of fighting. You know, I had nothing else left to give. I lost me too. And so surrender for me came in the form of just come get me. There was, you did such a beautiful job of describing this. Your book was riveting in that regard, even though your story was painful. We could identify with what you were going through. And so I would say at that moment, you just had, there was nothing else for you to do, but to just give up. That's right. That's right. There, there was, there was no place else to go. There was nothing else to fight. There was just this human, you know, thing here. Um, what I learned at his moment, at the moment of his death, and what happened to me then was what I call this 
co-joining of our humanity and our divinity. And I had never been there before. You know, so, I didn't realize this divinity that actually existed within me. And that's what I discovered. So we will ultimately bring this discussion back around to death being what you call, and I agree, a sacred time. And what you say is the most sacred opportunity mm -hmm. and time for any of us. But let's now venture into the crux of your story is what happened at the moment of your husband's death. And I'll introduce the term, which we've shared on this show a lot with people. You had an SDE, a shared death experience with your husband. We talk a lot in this show about near-death experiences, yeah. NDEs, but your SDE was profound and life-changing and you built up to that moment by showing how you suffered for years mm -hmm. and how very life-changing that was so why don't you share with us what happened um i lived in the hospital with my husband for six months six months that was before insurance companies kicked you out you know like they yes. do now yeah. Yeah. Um, i had a little cot in the side of the room and that's where I slept when I was able to sleep. And he had pancreatic cancer. He, he was right? diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and to say that it was stressful, would that, that is such an understatement. I didn't sleep, really. He didn't sleep because he had a dream that he died in his sleep. He was only 33 years old. Um, and so he never wanted to sleep. So it was cat naps. You know, as he would take a little nap, I would take a little nap. And you had the stress of a young child. Also, you had a son. Yes, he was eight years old. He was eight years old. My parents, uh, thank God, I, I was so blessed with amazing parents. And they came down because we were living in Tennessee at the time. They came down to take care of him. Uh, it, it was it, it, for me to have to make the decision whether I wanted to be with my child or with my husband who was dying when both of them needed me. I, I was just torn you know, every way you can think of, no matter what I did, I was making the wrong decision. Yeah. You know, just nothing, nothing worked. Um, and I watched this man who weighed 200 pounds go down to almost 99 pounds. Uh, it, the cancer just ate him up. I did everything that I could, which, you know, I kept telling myself that I was doing things, that, that I was going to win this battle. And, and all of this totally unaware of any greater reality, just based wow. on traditional faith that you described already. So just feeling. Yeah. There was lost. no faith. I, 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 it was really funny because I, like I said, I set up this battle with God and yet I didn't believe there was a God. And yet I wanted to believe there was a God because I had to blame somebody, you know? And yes. so there, there really was no faith in anything except fear and just fear just just plain fear. i was afraid of everything you know i i was afraid of losing and losing and losing and losing you know it was just every day and we were in a very small enclave of six families and i watched all of them go and we were the last ones and every time I, I, I would tell people, every time I would hear the cart, you know, screeching down the hallway with the doctors behind it, I was so afraid they were coming to us. Um, but I didn't want to see 
you know, I didn't want to see because if I needed to control what was going on because I had the worst control features in the universe, you know, I thought if I can control this, then he's not going to die. This is a key point because you come to learn that we don't ultimately have control of some of the greatest factors of life. No, absolutely not. I, you know, that's one of the things that I struggled with during all of that time was control because I thought, really, I honestly thought that if I could control what was happening with him, that I could control anything and that I was bigger than God and I was bigger than death and I was bigger than all of these and the angrier I got, um, the more they would leave me alone. I know it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That is the way I had to survive. And that was the way I was going to get him to survive. Didn't work out so well. (laughs) Well, I think at this point, I'm hearing very clearly from my team, we need to show people, give them hope and something more positive now because they get it. I know many people have been here. Yeah, yeah. The, The last day of his life was a really interesting day. I never left his room. And my older sister came to stay with me and she was like, I want you to come down and have breakfast with me. So I'm like, no, I'm not going to leave him alone. She said, you're going to come have breakfast. And Steve, that was my husband's name. He said, yeah, go, go. And so I thought, okay, the people in the cafeteria knew me because like I said, I lived there for six months and they would bring stuff up to me like blueberry buckle and all of these really good things. They came to find what I liked. So I went downstairs that morning with my sister and As I got out of the elevator, I looked at her. I said, I got to go back up. I got to go back up. So we got in the elevator and right back to the room we went. And in those few minutes, he had had a series of strokes. And he couldn't see me or feel me or hear me or anything. I have the goosebumps now. And that's the soul saying, you're right. The soul knows. And your soul, you know, you form a couple field with your loved ones. And you became one unit and you just knew now the time. Yeah. So I crawled up next to him, which is the first time I've been able to touch him in six months because pancreatic cancer had set every nerve on fire in his body. And we stayed that way till about 10 o'clock that night. Um, And then I got up because the doctor was there, who was a very good friend of mine by that time. And he said, I need to check Steve's vitals. Would you please get up (laughs) so I can do that? So I got up, went into the bathroom. And when I got in the bathroom, I heard the doctor, my mom and dad were in the room and the doctor was in the room, the oncologist. And since this is live, I will not tell you exactly what he said, but it was something like, oh my God, you know, put your own words in there. Yeah. And I ran out of the bathroom, almost fell flat in my butt because, you know, those linoleum floors they have in the hospital. And Steve had actually rolled over. Now remember all the strokes, he couldn't move, he couldn't feel, he couldn't see nothing. He had actually rolled over on his side. And he was facing the cot that I would lay on, which was underneath this big picture window. I rounded his bed and got right up next to him and and squatted myself down so that he and I were eye to eye. And he was looking at me. Suzanne, he had opened his eyes and my doctor was behind me the whole time, just swearing his head off, thinking, this can't be happening. I can't believe this is happening. And you would think at that moment that you would say the most profound thing that you'd ever said. And the only thing that came out of my mouth was, what are you staring at? I mean, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> because it was so natural. 
Yeah. You know, it, it was a natural thing for me to say. And at that time, I thought I won. You know, I won. I beat death. I did this. He's not going to die. Huh. I closed my eyes when he, when he said to me, after I said that to him, he looked at me and he spoke. And at that point, my father stood up, who was at the end of the bed, and he grabbed hold of, of Steve's feet. I could tell everyone in the room, my mom was crying, everybody was going crazy because this is not something that medically should have been able to happen. Right. And he was looking right in my eyes and I know he saw me. And when I said, what are you staring at? He says, I just want to remember. And when he said that, I closed my eyes and I took in a deep breath and I could feel his breath, you know, because when you're so, when you're so close to someone, I took a deep breath and I breathed in his breath and I could just feel it going through my whole body. And I was, I was thrilled beyond thrilled because I knew I had won. But then when I opened my eyes, his eyes had gone dark. And so I knew I hadn't won anything. And I knew that he had just died and I had breathed in his last breath. At that point, that surrender that I talked about, there wasn't anything else I could do. Right. So I fell on my knees. I didn't say anything. I didn't, because there wasn't anything left of me. You know, there was nothing, nothing left of me. And then I have described this as something not, but not of my power stood me up I stood up and I know I didn't do that of my own will because I didn't have any will anymore and I turned and the picture window was a big picture window over the bed over the little cot that I slept in got bigger and bigger and bigger and the floor beneath my feet I knew I was standing on that floor but it started to disappear the ceiling started to turn all misty. And, and I remember I knew where I was. You know, I knew I was in that room. Yes. I knew there was a ceiling. I knew there was a floor. And yet they were disappearing. And what was happening was the room was filling with stars. That's why the book's called Becoming Starlight. Billions and billions, just billions of stars came into where I was. And I could see each one of those stars separately, uniquely. I just have to interrupt for a moment this beautiful story that you're sharing with us that's your reality that is reality that shows how unreal this reality can be mm-hmm. and how our focus here is maintained here by the soul for us to have this earthly experience. But in that moment, the greatest gift for your soul, which is now being sent out as ripples to others to experience it through you and through your book is that you are a soul and yes it's stunning so tell us what your soul experienced then there was a presence in those stars like i said i could see each one of them separately and distinct and yet it was one star one and i felt this presence, and I got to tell you, I went into it willingly. I went into it willingly, and it became, 
I didn't know where the starlight ended and where I began or where I began and the starlight ended. I, I was so much a part of that. And I have said, I knew that place. I felt like I was home. I knew I was going home. I had a goosebumps again. <laughs> it, it was a straight, it was, it was so strange in the beginning because I was horribly confused, you know, but the confusion went away because I knew I had been to this place before. I knew it. Yeah. And I, I felt myself, I'm going to use the word cocooned. I was cocooned by something I, I know I said in the book that it, 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 there's not a word for what it was. I hear people talk about unconditional love. Ooh, no, that doesn't even hold a candle wow. to what this feeling is. This peace beyond peace, calmness beyond calmness. You know, I was numb. I passed through anger and hatred and sadness and sorrow so unbelievable that I don't think any human body could contain it I passed through all of those and then I went through happiness and joy and all of I passed through all of those emotions that any human can feel to a point where I just felt numb but it was it was the kind of numb where you know you take that big I'm home um, so not numb in a, I don't want to feel anything sense, but numb as in just being. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yeah, I just was. Mm. I just was. I didn't have to feel. I didn't have to fight. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to do anything. But this wasn't a coping mechanism. Oh, no, not at all. Mm -mm. Not, no, no, no. That, that I know what coping feels like. This was this, you know how sometimes when you're out in the water and you're just kind of floating yeah. and, and th th just being cocooned in that, this is where I want to be like forever. You know, if you want to equate it to, you know, baby being in the mother's womb where everything is safe and, and you're loved so much that you just, you know, that's, that's what it felt like. It's, I was home. I was safe. I didn't have to, I didn't have to fight anymore. Well, this is a perfect place to take a break because I want to hear how this affected your grief journey afterwards. We want to hear the rest of the story. Fascinating story we're sharing with Dr. Sharon Prentice, author of Becoming Starlight. So I hope you all will not go anywhere. We'll be right back. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. 
Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. And with our very special guest, Dr. Sharon Prentice, a psychologist who is a shining light parent. Her daughter crossed the veil just after childbirth. You had the opportunity to hold her and then immediately had to say goodbye. It's so painful. And I know many of our listeners can identify with that. And then your, your husband, you were young, both of you young, you were 30, he was 33, passed the pancreatic cancer. He was a Navy officer. I so identify with a lot of your travels, the duty stations where he served and how you were that, that, that Navy wife following him around, dedicated to him. Your father was in the Navy. But let's go back to where we were before the break. You have just gone through hell. And yet you suddenly find yourself in what some would call heaven. You, mm-hmm. you spoke of feeling like you were floating, you were home. And yet in the book, you say you can't even call it heaven. Right. Let's go there. There's a very specific reason for that. Um, when people hear the word heaven, the mind starts. And they go to the pictures that we have been fed from the time we're very little, especially if you are a ongoing church member. I was taught about heaven, you know, with the mansions and the streets of gold and you know, all that mess. Uh, I probably shouldn't call it mess, but (laughs) you know what I mean? For me to say I was in heaven, what I did not want was for people to equate what I was trying to say with this physical place that really is just a better description of earth does that make sense oh it makes perfect sense yeah Yeah. because Because what you're describing is unearthly yes yeah and that's why i said i call it that place Hmm. Uh, because for me to say it was heaven that that could have given people the idea that that is what I was seeing and that is where I was based on an earthly description from a man or a woman of the cloth. And that wasn't at all what I found. And, oh, let's not forget who you saw. I saw him. I saw Steve. Your husband. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was the funniest thing Funny, not haha, but you know, he he looked like he did before he got sick. Not and funny was, to me. That's how the spirits show up. Yeah, yeah. And he was smiling at me, and I was smiling at him. And once again, these incredibly profound words came out of my head. <laughs> I can see you. You know, I cannot say to you though that I was physical and that he was physical. 
I knew I looked like me and I knew he looked like him. But yep. to say that there was something that I could literally reach out and touch, you know, a, a physical form, I can't say that. Um, it feels to me like it was a dream state, yet I'm sure you know you weren't dreaming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know what had happened to me, but that's another whole story. Um, but the time came, this is the part that I, I struggled with for a long time. The time came when I knew that he was going someplace else uh-huh. and that I had no place where he was going. It wasn't my time. And he eventually, he turned and he walked. And you know, I didn't even say goodbye because I didn't need to. Say that again, please. I didn't say goodbye to him because I didn't need to. There was no need to say goodbye because I knew he was going to the place that was meant for him. I knew I had no place there. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was going to be with our daughter. I knew all of that. And that feeling of, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. Didn't need to say goodbye. It wasn't. And you know, how do I say this? It was the farthest thing from whatever mind, you know, was speaking to me at the time. I just knew that it was right. All of it was right. And I can't tell you how long we were together because there's no time and space. You know, time is absolutely irrelevant in that place. It doesn't exist. It wasn't part of any framework, you know, that I needed um, or that even existed. But I thought about that afterwards so much. Why didn't I say goodbye? Why didn't I say goodbye? And I kept saying to myself, because it wasn't necessary. Right. So meanwhile, you're in this, the awareness of a presence that is the starlight itself. And you're, did you feel one with it? Yes. Yes. Like I said, I didn't know if I was the starlight or if the starlight was me. Because we just joined, I say we, okay, because we just joined as one. I have referred to it as the as the co-joining of my humanity with my divinity. And that's when I found out where I belonged in the universe through that experience that I realized finally that this is not all we are. This is a very small part of who we are. You know, we can let me get that straight what you just said, because that was really profound. The co-joining of your humanity with your divinity. Yes. Yes. I never understood that before. How have you been able to bring that back with you? You can't, I, you can't lose it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. (laughs) You know, You you just can't, something woke up in me and I hate to use those words because you hear that awakening and all that stuff all the time. Yeah, but it works. Yeah. And when something inside of you, you know, the mystics call it that heart of hearts, you know, where it, it, it's this place in your heart where there are only two beings that exist, you and God. Okay. And once you enter that heart of hearts, you can't undo it. You can't unsee it. 
it becomes who you are and the physical part of you becomes secondary. So there you did it. You called it God. Mm -hmm. What else can we call that so that we don't get in a box? Right. You can call it source, the source of everything. Okay. God to me is, is not that physical being that I've heard about in church. And yet I'm going to use the word he, he most certainly can be. Um, God. Yeah, that's, that's so key. So important. Yeah. yeah. If, if you and everybody who's listening and me, we all dissolve into this startup. Yeah. Moment by moment in my awareness, Sharon, not just when we pass, it's always informing us here and now. Always, always. We just have to listen to the whispers. People don't listen to the whispers until finally you get this bullhorn in your head that says, listen to me. And that's when you get knocked on your butt because you haven't paid attention to what your soul whisper. I call it the underside of the soul. That's what I call it. And the reason I call it that is because as I'm going through these journeys and then after that experience, I realize that so much of who we are from the moment we're born, um, we're told who we are, what our name is, what religion we're going to be, how we're going to dress, where we're going to go, all of these things, right? It's like giving a kid a, a, a whole box of crayons and, and, a, and a, a coloring book and say, here, color. And then you see what they do. And then you take all the crayons away except from three and say, now you have to color within the box. Yeah. See what well, I'm saying? Yeah, and oh yeah, it's our story. story. I'm sorry, I overtalked you. <laughs> no, that's it's fine. So you touched that, you felt that. And I remember when my Susan passed and I came to the same realization you did through S-T-E in a different form. S you had an SDE, shared death experience. And I've had multiple STEs, spiritually transformative experiences. And all of us can have them. You by grace had this transformational experience that totally transformed your grief journey. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But I remember crying, does someone have to die for us to get this? Mm. And the answer in so many cases is yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because we're so in the box and blinded by the human story. Yes. So hopefully through hearing stories like yours and mine and others who come on the show and those we read about, at least that gives the soul a chance to whisper a little more loudly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes tremendous trauma. For me, it took a second storm for me to, you're going to understand this. It took the second storm of Steve's death for me to die to myself. Oh, please explain that. I know exactly what you mean, but that will be an unusual term to some people tuning in now. I had to die. Not, not the way people think of death what I thought of myself, what I thought of who I was, um, the things that I thought were important, all the things that I'd been taught all my life that I thought were true. That's the, the surrender. That's you, the surrender. Yeah. 
you yeah. die to this, I'm gonna use the word knowledge. You have to die to this knowledge that has been beat into your brain, okay, that you are this physical person. Dying to that makes you see, oh, that's not me at all. There's so much more to me. And that's why I say this co-joining of your humanity, which is very important, your humanity with your divinity. Because yeah, it doesn't mean you don't still have a story, right? You still live right. fully. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, more. You know, yeah. waking, up, waking up to this, wow, I am that unique thought of God. Yes. You know, he thought, I tell this story and it's so funny. You know, it's like God sitting up there saying, you know, I want to show the world this part of me. Bam, Suzanne's born. Okay, and you are here to say, See this in me? I didn't create this myself. I am that unique thought that God wanted the world to see. And my humanity is here to show that divine thought. I love that. And you so get that. And probably if you put yourself back to the days and months before Steve died, that would have sounded ridiculous to you. And yet now, once you grasp that, it changes everything. And the beautiful thing, Sharon, is your work and my work and those who get this is all about showing others it's in you and it's in everyone else. And when we can see that essence, that starlight in everyone it's that's love that's saying i get it here you are and here i am we are this yes yes absolutely you know that that tapestry you know we are all the threads we are we are all the threads in it and you pull one of those threads out and that means that thought of god is being pulled out of the hole you know i would have never i i was not i i wasn't a a what's the word that my faith in God was one of those ones. Oh yeah. I believe in God. Oh yeah. I believe in God. What I believed in was what the man or the woman at the pulpit was saying, because I was afraid not to believe it and coming to realize that that wasn't true at all. Wasn't true at all. That came to me when my daughter died because I begged, I bargained. I, I take me, don't take her, you know, you know what, what people do you with, with your daughter. And then she died anyway. And that was the moment I realized that everything I had believed in my whole life was a bunch of bunk. <laughs> so let's get back to what you said at the beginning, because I know so many people listening or watching are grieving and they're asking that very same question you asked. Why? Why? And you really address this beautifully in the book. So share it with us now, please. Oh, my gosh. Why did this happen? I, I think it's I, the wrong question to ask, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I thought I was a victim. I thought I was a victim of the universe. I thought I was a victim of God. I thought I was a victim of death. I thought I was a victim of all of that stuff. But I wasn't. Um, even since I've written the book, every day I learn something more about death and dying and why we're here and you know, it's, it, it, it's funny, again, not haha funny, but I think we are here for a moment. Do we have a mission? Quite possibly. What could that mission be? Smile like someone in an elevator. You made their day so they don't go home and kill themselves, right? Right. 
you know, yep. it can be anything. And that the thing is being that unique thought of God, how long does that thought need to be here on this earth until you pass it on? I mean, is that what you were getting at? Am I missing? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And you say in the book quite uh, a few times beautifully that you were under the mistaken belief that we're life is supposed to be easy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've been taught that. You know, you do everything right. Then life is going to be fair and wonderful. And up fair. until that yeah. point when my daughter died, I did what I was supposed to do. You know, I, I did it because I was afraid not to. I thought, oh, you know, but life is not fair. That is fair. such a key point. And we, I, that's when we revert to being a little kid and we want to get on the floor and kick and scream and say, wait right. a minute, what do you mean life is not fair? Right. Nobody yeah. said it was going to be fair. Okay. We all just assume it's going to be fair. And we assume it's never going to be us. But you know what? I have found through years of practicing that to you, you're the other guy to the other person. You know, that's always going to happen to somebody else. You're that somebody else. So how do we live with peace knowing life isn't fair? Oh, you know, you just, once again, that all has to do with surrender. It has to do with, you got to pass through thinking to believing to knowing. Okay. And that is a progression. Most people end, unfortunately, at believing they don't make that transition into knowing because once you make that transition into knowing and you accept the fact that you are mortal, we walk around as if we are immortal. Okay. We're going to be here forever. The people that we love are going to be here forever. Nothing ever bad is going to happen. And then when it does, you feel like you've been throat punched. So we accept that we're mortal, but we're trying to get to the point of knowing what? That we're not. That we're not mortal. <laughs> Wait, we're not immortal. Sorry. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it's. <sighs> but but that sounds hopeless to me. No, 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 no. It is not hopeless because that's when you come alive. Huh. When you are alive in the true spirit of who you are, and you can get past this this physical stuff and really get into your heart of hearts and really start loving. Okay, not just this unconditional love that you hear come out of everybody's mouth. I mean, truly loving the fact that you are just this incredible thought, just this incredible thought of God, and you start giving it away. There you go. There you just just give it away. The lives you can change, and you change your own also. And that is so incredibly important. So when it does come time for you to make this process of dying, you can go into it knowing you're going home. So your physical body is mortal. You accept that, you're saying. Yes. And but you also realize you are immortal as a soul. Absolutely. And that while you're here in this form, your task is to be the expression of the yes. divinity that breathes you into being. Why else would we want to be here? Amen. You know, it's love. Hmm. That's what it is. And get rid of fear, get rid of 
just, you know, the hatred and the, the anger and all of those things that I lived in for a very long time. Once you're gone, you know, once those feelings are gone, you can see that, oh, this sounds so trite. I know it does, but being creatures of absolute love for someone else, it changes lives. Not trite at all. It's truth with a capital T. Now, we're running a little bit out of time. I want to talk about your book, Becoming Starlight, Surviving Grief and Mending the Wounds of Loss. You told me on the break, you wrote this book for your patients yes. who kept asking you, should I be afraid? You yeah. who are counseling people about death and dying. Yeah. What's the answer? Oh, what is the answer? You know, he here's the thing about death and dying. It's coming. Huh. For all of us. Okay. My quest is to take away some of the fear of that process and to let people know that the one of the biggest fears that people have is that they're just going to disappear into nothingness yes ma'am and the people that they love are going to disappear into nothingness and that is so far from the truth so far from the truth and i honestly believe that we will be connected in some way with those that we love and i learned that in my sde okay i don't know what the final result of that would be because like i said i wasn't allowed to go any further i wasn't allowed to follow steve to where he was going i can only imagine where it was he went because it was so absolutely magnificent where i was i, I could have stayed there forever and not you know been oh let me move on no 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 um to help people overcome the fear that their loved ones are gone forever that is so that is so healing. And especially for people who've lost children, Suzanne, it is so important for, for I'm going to say women on this one. It's not that I'm excluding men, but I'm going to say women. Do you know that you carry your daughter's DNA in your body? Well, she is my stepdaughter, but I know that you speak truth for those who have biological children. You carry, because you're, you know, there's this blood transfer between the child when she is in your womb this blood transfer. So she or he carries your DNA, no matter where in the universe they are, and you carry theirs. And studies have shown that up to 18 years after the death of a child, the mother is still carrying that DNA in their body. Do you know what that does for people to realize that they carry their child within them? after they've lost that child. But long, it's eternal. It's not an 18-year yeah. period. No, it's, it's not. It goes on. This is just, you know, science. They can take it only so far and then they this stop. It's far beyond science. Oh, yeah. This is, oh, yeah. Science doesn't hold a candle to this. So you're telling people they don't disappear into nothingness. My, <laughs> a great part of my work is to help people taste what you've tasted and what I've had in the STEs myself to have that experience for themselves through contemplative meditative practices mm -hmm. and the yeah. like what other advice do you have for, for people so that they come to this knowing you know one of the things that i try and teach people is sacred word meditation sacred word has helped me beyond anything it has helped me hold on to 
some of these 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 feelings and this magnificence that I felt before. And it's really so easy. Everybody talks about meditation as if you're supposed to shut your brain off, you know, automatically and not think right. of anything and just own yourself into oblivion. And that's not what happens with meditation. And sacred word, you can do anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are as long as you're comfortable. And you meditate on a word that is sacred to you. It can be God. It can be Jesus. It can be your child's name. It can be anything you want it to be. And when you concentrate on that word, what normally happens is that it takes you right to the foot of creation. It takes you right to the foot of God. And that divinity in you helps you understand that you are never alone that the person you have lost is still with you and always will be with you. This, this bond can never be broken. And that is so important in anyone's healing process. That's why I do a lot of sacred word because when people can find their word and get to that actual foot of source, then they can see it they can feel it. And like I said in the beginning, once you see it, once you feel it, that's it. You can't unsee it. You can't, you can't unsee, unsee it. it. We have just a little over a minute to go. I want to come right back to where we started to help people see the dying process as sacred. You have some yeah. final words for us about that, please. Be there. Be there. Listen, love, talk. They can hear you, even if they've lapsed into coma or whatever. Be there. Don't run from it, because if you run from it, you are missing the greatest love you will ever have with the person that is leaving you because they're there. Their soul may have disconnected. And it is right. At, it, it, the combining, okay, this co-joining with this person you're losing. Don't run from it. Don't be afraid of it. Take it in. And just the physical aspect is all that's leaving. It's, it's, we call it losing, but it's, you're both gaining something very precious, that, it, that awareness of the eternal connection. Absolutely. Yeah. The physical is just, you know, that shell. And when a person dies, the room fills with their spirit. It fills. And if you sit quietly, you Finish that sentence and we're out of time, Sharon. <laughs> That's okay. No, I mean, sit with it. Don't run from it. And you'll carry it in your soul for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. What a blessing. What a beautiful show. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us, Sharon. May it uplift all of you listening today. It's just been an honor to share with you. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, 
available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.